Today we begin a brand new sermon series that will last today, next week, and the following three weeks in a row entitled The Armor of God. Today's sermon is entitled Behind Enemy Lines. I know what it is to be behind enemy lines. I know the fear that can grip the soul. I understand firsthand the beads of sweat that develop over the brow the sweaty palms, the fear that you must grapple with, laying in the dirt on my face, covered in dust, my back against the berm, my gun jammed, the enemy was beginning to surround me. They had told me in training to keep my weapon clean, but I had dipped the muzzle into the soft powdery sand of Ironwood's river bend. And now my paintball gun wouldn't even fire. <laughs> Where did you think this story was going? Because you've been here a long time. I, I was on a very specific mission that Friday afternoon. My mission was to capture that flag. And now it appeared that I would become the latest casualty because they were swarming around me and as I lay there with the flag just out of reach because my arms were too short <laughs> to grab it. There were several men dressed in black and camo who came around the corner and mercilessly lit up their pastor. <laughs> and that's what men's retreat is all about, I guess. Do we also all here agree, can we agree that it's not nice to be cruel to your pastor, amen? Especially, But they don't care. They didn't love me. They lit me up. They do it every single year at our men's retreat. Last year we didn't have men. This year we do. In a couple months we'll have it. So I know what it is. I know what it is to be behind enemy lines. But not in the way that some of you do. Because we actually have vets in this room, people who have seen the worst of the worst. Those are the men and women who watch a war movie and they, they allow things to slide. Because they know that Hollywood could never put on film what actually takes place. There is a war, but it's not a war that you're familiar with, not a war that you think about quite often. It's a war that you're involved with, and you, without even realizing it, are behind enemy lines. The Bible calls the world, this earth, the place you live, the place you are born and call home, it, it calls it the dominion of Satan. And you were born in not a world that has been already redeemed by Christ. You live in a world that is run by the powers of evil. And those powers of evil have been there since your birth, since it preceded your birth, and will probably, unless Jesus Christ comes back in our lifetime, will be there long after you leave. And in the midst of this battle, in the midst of this war, you find yourself as a combatant. You say, no, no, I'm just an innocent party. I haven't taken sides. Regardless of taking sides, you are already the enemy of, of the enemy of God. And this passage begins to describe a spiritual war that every single one of us in this room have been a part of since birth. 
The question is not whether or not you find yourself in the midst of a battle. The question is not whether you find yourself in the midst of a war. The question of this passage is how you prepare for that battle. Now, if I began the sermon, which I contemplated doing so, by asking, how many of you feel like life is a battle? Many of you would raise your hand. If I asked the question, how many of you feel like life is war? And it seems like every single day, just to get up and go to work and to keep the relationship going and to care for your children the way you're supposed to and to pay your bills and pay your taxes and to watch the world fall apart as it so often does. Many of you would have said, yes, we're at war. But you may be thinking of the wrong war, a sub-war, a battle of the biggest battle. Because some of us think in terms of political war or cultural war or relational war or business as war or school as war. But in reality, there is a broader, bigger war that places itself over all of these things. A war that goes back to the days of Adam and Eve and a war that you're caught up in. It is spiritual warfare. And this war that you find yourself in, you can be prepared for, and this passage teaches you how. Verses 10, all the way through verse 24, talk about the spiritual war that the Christian finds himself in. And first and foremost, we see that you can prepare by, number one, knowing your enemy. I'm going to say, know your enemy. You say it back to me. Let's say it together. Know your enemy. How do you prepare for war? Say it with me. Know your enemy. Now, this is the biggest danger of so many Christians today is that you assume your enemy is somebody that is actually not your enemy. Your enemy is the devil. Look at what the Bible says in verse 12. For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood. You say, no, my enemy, pastor, I know who my enemy is. I know my enemy because she sleeps beside me every single night. I know her. You say, I know my enemy, Pastor, because we, we, no, we're on the same team. My wife and I, we're on the same team. Our enemy, we have combined forces. Our, en- our mutual enemy are the children, and we try to keep them at bay as much as we possibly can. Some of us think our mutual enemy, our enemy is our neighbor, or our enemy is our boss, or our enemy is our employees, or if you work with the public, our enemy is the customer, whatever it might be. But in reality, according to this scripture, the Bible says in verse 12, that we don't fight in this battle against flesh and blood, against other human beings. We don't fight other humans. We fight demonic forces. Look at what it goes on to say. But against principalities, against powers, against the rulers of the darkness of this age, it's talking about classifications of demons from Satan and his demonic followers, different classifications that we fight against, against spiritual hosts in wicked, of wickedness in heavenly places. You say, we fight against Satan? Yes, we do. Yes, we fight against Satan. Now, some of you who are Christians are thinking to yourself, well, if we fight against Satan, I thought Satan was a defeated foe. Wasn't he defeated at the cross? When Jesus Christ died upon the cross, doesn't the book of Colossians say that he utterly defeated the enemy Satan and made a public open show of him and destroyed Satan's plans? Yes, Satan is defeated, but he has not been completely disarmed. And though his ultimate fate has been decided, he has been damned and he will spend eternity in hell away from all mankind. His fight continues because he still battles those of us who are followers of Christ. On a daily basis, he fights you. Peter knows this all too well. Peter, the apostle of Jesus. 
Have you ever said something stupid? Like, I mean, like, like bluntly stupid. Like so stupid, you're like, thank God nobody was filming stupid. You know what I'm talking about? You ever said anything stupid? How many of you, like me, have ever said something stupid before? Raise your hand. All right, you would, you would get along very well with Peter. Peter was constantly saying stupid things. And all the time, the other apostles were there to check it out. You're like, oh, that's good. I'm going to write that. All Christians forever will know Peter's an idiot. They'll write it down. That's what they did. Matthew, Mark, Luke, everybody's writing these things down. John loved to write it down. Peter would say stupid things. And one time, Peter said something really stupid. And Jesus looked at Peter and said, get behind me, Satan. Now, you know you're in a bad day whenever Jesus calls you Satan. You know what I mean? Like, that's, like, this is a bad moment. And Jesus explained to Peter at another moment, Jesus said to Peter, Peter, here's your problem. Satan desires to have you, that he can sift you like wheat. Why was Satan so after Peter? Listen to me. The reason Satan was so after Peter is because the devil has been around a very long time, and he can point out a potential threat to his kingdom. Your enemy knows when you cause potential damage to his plan. And so if you are a follower of Christ, the moment you bowed your knee to Jesus and received Christ as Savior, you are painting a target on your back and the devil came after you. Now, some of you are like, well, maybe I won't bow my knee to Jesus Christ. Well, good luck worshiping the other side. The devil is after, uh, after Peter, and the Bible tells us that Peter knew what this was like. Throughout his life, he battled the devil. And so later, it's an old man. Now, can you picture Peter as an old man, and he's a preacher of the gospel, and now he's got a long white beard, and he's got more white hair than your pastor does. And he was sitting there writing a letter to all of the churches in Cappadocia and Galatia and Bithynia and the uppermost regions of what we would call modern-day Turkey. And he was writing them a letter, and in the letter, he says, be careful about the devil. He says in 1 Peter chapter 5 and verses 8 and 9, he said to them, be sober, that is, wake up. Do you know one of the reasons why God is having me preach this sermon next Sunday and the week after about spiritual warfare is because there are many Christians who are asleep. You have been drugged. You are sleeping you don't see the way the world is happening around you. And you don't realize the spiritual warfare that you're in. And so I'm going to wake you up. Be sober. Be vigilant. And by the way, some people don't like it when they get woke up. There's going to be some people, I already know it from the first sermon. Uh, today at 8.30, there are going to be some people that get upset with me because they were asleep. And you woke, I woke them up to the truth of the spiritual war they're in. And they're angry with me. Oh, I'm going to say some things today that are going to, you're going to startle. You'll be like, is that true? And you're going to look at the Bible and you'll be like, he's right. The Bible says it. Be sober. Be vigilant because you have an adversary, the devil, who, now he gives a metaphor. I like metaphors. I heard somebody one time say, if you don't learn by a metaphor, you might have to learn by a two before. That's pretty good, right? <laughs> is that funny? I'll use it. It's good. He said, here's the metaphor, who walks about like a roaring lion? The Bible says, Peter said, the devil is like a wounded lion. 
Yes, he was defeated utterly at the cross, but he's not been disarmed, which means he is like an angry, wounded lion, and he's walking about seeking whom he may devour. Now he says, resist him steadfast in the faith, knowing that the same sufferings are experienced by your brotherhood in the world. Do you, how many of you ever notice and know, you say, man, Pastor Josh, you don't have to convince me. I know the devil is battling me. I understand the battles of the devil. Is that you? If it's true, would you raise your hand with me? Okay, good. A lot of you say, yeah, I feel it. If not, I'm waking you up to it. Can I tell you, those who know it, listen, the same battles you are facing are the same battles all of your brothers and all of your sisters in the family of God are experiencing around the world and have since the time of Jesus. You are not the only one in the battle. We're all there. And he, our enemy, he, he hates you. He hates you. And he hates the family of Christ. And he hates even the family of Adam, the descendants of Adam and the descendants of Eve. He hates all the sons of Adam and all the daughters of Eve, even those who repent and receive Christ as Savior. He hates all of us. You say, well, what did I ever do to him? I don't hate him. Why did he hate me? The answer goes back to his backstory, his origin story. See, the origin story of the devil is that he wasn't always called the devil, which means adversary. He wasn't always the adversary. His name was Lucifer, which means the bright and shining star. Lucifer was one of God's angels. But not just any angel. He was a cherub, a cherubim. They say, what's a cherubim? If you think of a cherubim as, um, as a cute little fluffy baby with, you know, angel's wings, and you're like, oh, that's cute. You're thinking like a, a Renaissance painter and not as a biblical character. Cherubim, angel, was a special classification of angels that worked for God. These were the angels who are, are presented as the guarding angels of the throne of God, the special elite guard. So God himself, king of the universe, sits upon a throne. He's got angels all over his universe. But the closest ones to him, these cherubim, they hover over his throne, holding their wings over his throne, and they bring glory to him and protect his holy name. Lucifer was one of these guys. And in this very special place close to God, the Bible says that sin was found in his heart. They say, what sin would have been found in Lucifer's heart? The sin of pride. And he began to lie to himself. And he began to say, you could do his job. The original sin, not of humans, the original sin of all the world, the universe, was the sin of thinking you could do job, God's job better than God can do his job. Humanity has repeated this sin over and over. Every time we question God's sovereignty, every time we question God's goodness, every time we question God's way in our lives or the way in the world, we think to ourselves, God's pretty good on that throne, but I wonder what I would do if I were sitting there. The answer is that is absolute rebellion against God. 
And so Satan began to say, Lucifer began to say within his heart, I could ascend up to the Most High. I could sit on the sides of the north. I could sit upon his throne. I could be like the Most High. And the Bible says that sin triggered a war inside of heaven. The war has been rippling throughout the universe ever since. And you find yourself inside of that war every single day. Michael, the archangel, grabs a hold of the devil. The devil grabs a hold of Michael, the archangel. And there is a spiritual battle, a conflict over the throne of God. A third of the angels had already begun to be convinced by Lucifer that God did not have their best interest at heart. And so a third of the angels rebelled and, and, and claimed mutiny against God himself. And they were thrust out of heaven, kicked out of the kingdom of God, only allowed back to the throne occasionally to report back to God on occasion. And now the devil and his demons cast to earth, completely abandoned by God, the one in whom they have rebelled against. Why does he hate us? Because of the next thing that God does. The next thing that God does is he comes to a little planet called Earth and he kneels into the ground and he picks up some dirt, dust, clay. This is when you and I come into the story. And he molds and he makes and he shapes a human. And the Bible says he breathes into his nostrils the breath of life and man becomes a living soul. You say, why would Satan be bothered by that? God was a creator. He just kept creating because of what God created. The Bible tells us in Genesis chapter 3 and multiple other passages, the Bible tells us that when God created man and woman, he created them in the image of God. The one thing that Lucifer wanted more than anything was to be God. And now God goes down to dirt and makes something out of dirt that is in his own image. And from that moment, you had an enemy you didn't even know about. And so he came after your mother first, convinced her to eat of the tree, came after your father next, and that sin passed down from their life to your life, and the devil has fought us ever since. He hates, he hates, he hates you. He wants you destroyed. His plan for you is very simple. If you're not a believer in Christ, your soul is on its way to hell. He will do everything he possibly can do to keep you occupied with other things so that when you die, you have no salvation you will split hell wide open and spend eternity in that kingdom. That's his plan for you. And the reason why you're so fascinated by the things this world has to offer, the reason why you're so obsessed with this battlefield or that battlefield or this war or that war or this relationship or that relationship, it's all a distraction to keep your soul from repentance and receiving Christ as Savior. And when you die, they will have won and they will have forgotten your name as you get buried into the depths of the, of the ground. That is the devil's plan for you if you're not a believer. How do I defeat that? Well, God has brought you to this moment to repent of your sin and receive Christ as Savior. Now, you can rebel against God like the devil did and reject Jesus Christ, or you can repent of your sin, receive Christ as your Savior, and you'll be saved. If you've never done that, you should do that today. However, say, Pastor Josh, I am a Christian. What is the devil's plan for me? It looks like I beat him. The devil's plan for you is now that you're in the war, 
is to forget that you're in a war. His plan for you is to lull you to sleep. So when times are good, all you're thinking about is the awesome things that you have, not God. And when times are bad, all he's going to do is convince you to focus on other elements of the battle that are not spiritual in nature. Either way, he distracts you from being the warrior that you can and should be. And so my job today is to wake you up. You say, well, pastor, I, I didn't realize the devil hated me. He does. He hates you. He hates all the brothers and sisters in Christ. He hates all humans, but that's not the only thing you need to know here. You also need to know other humans are not the enemy. Other humans are not the enemy. Say that with me. Other humans are not the enemy. Say it again, say it again. Other humans are not the enemy. Some of you really have a hard time with that. Say, let's say it one more time. Other humans are not the enemy. We do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against principalities, against power. Other humans are not the enemy. You say, well, pastor, there's a lot of people I don't like. <laughs> and it seems like they're working for the enemy. <laughs> so 2 Timothy, I won't turn there because of time, but 2 Timothy actually tells you who these people are. They're not the enemy. They are captives of the enemy. There's no human that is your enemy, spiritually speaking. The, enemies are, the enemy has captured humans. 2 Timothy, Paul tells Timothy, look, don't fight with those people. But instead, with patience, persuade them. Peradventure, God may give them an opportunity to repent. Patiently win them over with good argument. Patiently win them over with love. Patiently win them over with grace and mercy. And peradventure, those who have been taken captive by the devil, you may release, and then they'll be on the right side. But you know what we like to do? We like to get our mind off of the real enemy and we like to point at other human beings as if they're the enemy. And one of the greatest tricks the devil has ever played is not only that he has convinced some that he doesn't exist. The greatest trick that the devil has played is to cause mischief and then point at another human to make you hate them and not him. You ever done this before? You ever tap somebody on the shoulder and then like go over here? You know what? They're looking around. Who was that? Who was that? Who was that? This is what the de enemy does. My my mother and father were. Um, this happened decades ago. They were very young, and they were sitting uh, in a car. So the story goes, and I don't know where this car was, and I don't know where they were driving. But my father was driving, and my mother was in the passenger seat. And my father, my mother assumes or thinks or believed somehow thought that my father had had looked over at another woman in another car. Now, I don't know his side of the story because I've only heard my mother's side of the story multiple times. And there he was, and sometimes you notice, you know, something, and you look, and, and, and you look too long. And so this is what was happening, maybe, maybe, I don't know. I mean, who am I to judge? I, don't, I wasn't there, I wasn't there. If I was, I was three years old, sitting in the back seat, not in a car seat, because back then, kids just crawled all over the car. <laughs> you know what I mean? Yeah. And my, my father's looking, and, and my, my mother's, what is it? He said, I wasn't, I wasn't, and she was a little upset, and she handled it the way only Anna Tice could handle something like this. She decided, and she has this ability to stick her two fingers in her mouth and whistle louder than anybody I've ever heard. 
So she whistles as loud as she could and ducks. So now my father's looking at this woman, and this woman looks back at my father, and she's like, hey. And he's like, oh, uh, and she, you know, she got her way. One of the greatest tricks of the enemy is to cause mischief and then point to another human. One of the greatest tricks of your enemy is to cause mischief and then say, your husband is the enemy, your children are the enemy, your boss is the enemy, that person is the enemy, the other human is the enemy. Why? Because the devil doesn't need to fight us if he can get us to fight each other. Man, that is smart warfare. Just allow humanity to devour itself. Just have us fight in the home and fight in our community and fight in our nation and have nation fight against nation. Brilliant, absolutely, incredibly brilliant. Uh, we could have learned this from the art of war, could we not have? A famous old book. Go to the slide. Sun Tzu said all war is based on deception. And so we find the spiritual war is true as well. See, there are two mistakes that people will make regarding the devil, and we'll move on to the second point. The first mistake that people will make regarding the devil is some of us are so advanced in our 21st century intelligence that we think things about the spiritual world that just simply can't be. Oh, pastor, you're such an archaic anti-intellectual. There is no devil. I know. I've looked everywhere in the universe, and I've proven he does not exist. Well, good for you. You are absolutely perfectly in the place that he wants you to be. The first mistake that many people make, even Christians, is to ignore the fact that the devil is even there. The second mistake that Christians make is instead of ignoring the fact the devil is there, they make far too much about the devil. Sermon series like this, churches will focus on three weeks, five weeks, ten weeks, and all we're going to do is study the devil and how the devil can get inside of you and the devil is after you. Instead of focusing so much on him, how about we focus on Jesus Christ? And so the first thing you must do in this battle, first and foremost, is know your enemy. Number two, you must follow your warrior king. Say warrior king. Warrior king. Say it again. Say it again. Warrior king. Say it one more time. Warrior king. See, some Christians know they're in a war. The problem is not that they don't, they, they know they're in a war. The problem is that these Christians are following the wrong hero. Man, life is a war, pastor. Every day I battle. Life is tough, man. Every day. But the problem is you're, you're looking to a wrong hero. For some of you, your hero is your spouse. They're going to save you from everything. For some of you, you become older, and now you're going to live through your children, and they've become your hero. For some Christians, their hero is a politician. As long as the right politician gets in, then we'll be saved. For some people, their hero is a preacher. And I've got to tell you, that is a big mistake. For some people, your hero is not another human. Your hero is the person looking at it in the mirror. And you think to yourself, you can do it. And you watch all sorts of videos, and all you got to do is tell yourself over and over, you're the greatest person who ever lived. All you got to do is rise up. You're the greatest. You're going to be so strong. Here's the facts. None of those people you could look to. They are not the hero of this spiritual war. There is one, Jesus Christ. He is the warrior king. 
Look at the text. Look at the text. Look at the text. It says in verse 10, finally, my brethren, be strong in yourself. Is that what it says? Yes or no? Finally, my brethren, be strong in your pastor. Is that what it says? Yes or no? Finally, my brethren, be strong in your nation because yours is the best and it never has fallen and it never will. Is that what it says? Strong in the Lord and in the power of his might. Notice this, his might. He is the one who strengthens, who that strength comes in you so that you can battle. Jesus Christ, the warrior king. We don't believe this. We don't believe this is because we only have a certain perspective of who Jesus actually is. You and I have a partial view of a very complex person named Jesus Christ. Jesus is this. Let me show you a photo. This is Jesus. Yes. See, we we picture Jesus as the, the nice teacher out on the field giving the Sermon on the Mount, talking to fishermen, beautiful scenery. Is this Jesus, yes or no? Yes. Some of you are like, I think that photograph was taken recently. No, I get it. Okay, it's an actor. All right. <laughs> is, this, is this Jesus, yes or no? Yes, yes, all right. Yes, this is Jesus. This is, that, this is Jesus. This is also Jesus. Here's another photo. Jesus with a child. Jesus was the one who said, don't, don't keep the children from me. Let them come beside me. Allow the little children to come to me. Don't forbid them, for such is the kingdom of heaven. In fact, you can't even get to the kingdom of heaven unless you're like a little child in your faith. Is this Jesus? Yes or no? Yes, but this is also Jesus, a warrior king. A warrior king with a sword coming out of his mouth, ready to slaughter millions, with blood dripping from his clothes. I don't like thinking about Jesus that way. Take me back to the nice man with children. That's because what we like to do as Christians today is not take the Bible and change what we believe. We like to take what we believe and force it into the Bible. And then we cut out the rest. Let me give you another image of Jesus that the Bible talks about multiple times. Revelation chapter 19. I don't want you to look to that passage. I want you to focus on the picture. Let's go to the picture. And look at the picture while I read this passage. Now I say even, now I saw heaven open. This is, the passage is Revelation 19. It's at the battle of Armageddon. We're at the very end of the world. We're talking about the apocalypse. After the world has gone through the tribulation period, John the apostle looks up into the sky and heaven rips open and Jesus Christ comes down upon a horse ready to go to war, a warrior king. And he said, here he sat upon his horse, behold, a white horse, and he who sat on him was called faithful and true. And in righteousness, he judges and makes war. And his eyes were like a flame of fire. And on his head were many crowns and was clothed with a robe dipped in blood. And his name was called the word of God. And out of his mouth goes a sharp sword that with it he should strike the nations. And he has on his robe and on his thigh a name written. Have you ever had a a monogrammed piece of clothing? Jesus does. He brings it to battle. And dripping from the bottom of his robe is the blood that he caught from down there in Edom. And where he was, 
the Valley of Megiddo, and now he arrives at the city of Jerusalem, ready to plant his feet upon the Mount of Olives. And before he does, at the end of the Battle of Armageddon, John says, I noticed on the side of his clothes a name written, Lord of Lords, King of Kings. But it doesn't just say on his robe it was written. If you read closely, it says upon his robe and upon his thigh, so that in the midst of the battle, when his thigh is exposed, it's not just on his, on his clothing, tatted right across his thigh, King of Kings, Lord of Lords, just so that you don't make the mistake. This is the warrior king that we are called to follow. Let me be very clear. Jesus Christ is not afraid of the war that we are in. He's the one who kicked it off. There was a night in the garden, the Bible says, where Jesus would often go and pray, where he was upon his knees, bowing before his father. He knew his ministry on earth was over, and the last accomplishment was to die upon the cross, to pay for the sins of mankind. That was his final goal. And there he was, upon his knees in the garden, the Bible tells us, before Judas would come and betray him with a kiss, and he cried out to his father, is there any other way? I mean, not my will, but your will. But if there's another way, I'll take it. It was time. Jesus, who knew all things, could have bolted out of that garden, but he stood straight and stood strong. As Judas came, betrayed him with a kiss, he looked at his brother and he said to him, you betray the son of man with a kiss. With a kiss. They grabbed Jesus and they shackled him. At any moment, he could have called the forces of his angels to slaughter them all. But he knew without the death upon the cross, the sins of mankind would not be forgiven and your soul would be damned. So he allowed himself to go through the mock trials. He allowed himself to be taken to the Via Della Rosa, stripped naked, beat with whips. And then they took him and they put a cross on his shoulder and said, march to your death. And people today say, I want to be a follower of Jesus. And Jesus says, pick up your cross and follow me. I don't know where Americans have gotten the idea, if you follow Jesus, all of your wildest dreams will come true. Heaven is your reward. Love, joy, and peace in the midst of hell is going to be your reward. But to follow Christ means you are going to be hated by this world and you need to pick up your cross and follow him into war. And so the only way to defeat the sin of mankind, to pay for the sins of mankind, to defeat the devil, was to allow himself to be slaughtered on a cross. And so there he was without fear. There he was without embarrassment. There he was without any kind of turning back where he cried out to God, into thy hands I commit my spirit. He prayed and he died. That is our warrior king. And we are called to follow him with that kind of faith. He isn't afraid of war, but war is still upon us. And if war be upon you, hear me, you should not be afraid. 
You don't think war is upon you? When governments for any reason start shutting down churches and arresting pastors, war is upon you. Do you understand? It can't happen here in America. It is happening here. If our society in America, in America, continues to trend in the direction that it is, I'm telling you, 10 years from now, what I'm doing right now will be considered hate speech. Let me ask you a question. Will you vote those people in so I go to, uh, go to jail? For you? You have to ask yourself a question when it comes to voting. Who are the people most likely to allow you to keep going to church? I don't think I like this. That's because you don't think like a Christian. You say, man, I'm offended. Don't be offended with me. Come and be as bold with me as I am with you. Call me up. Let's go to coffee. I'll, we'll talk. You're at war, people. You say, man, I, some of you, by the way, you're like, oh, I hate them. I wish we could kill them all. You don't fight against flesh and blood. You're falling for the trick of somebody tapping you on the shoulder. It's not them. They're simply captives of your real enemy. But it, nonetheless, you are at war. Do you understand that when church... By the way, you say, man, I, I just don't think it's that bad. I got a call from a friend of mine who pastors in Australia this week. This week, I got a call. Did you call your pastor friends in Australia? Did you? I did. You know what he said to me? He said, Pastor Josh, what am I going to do? I said, what do you mean? He said, I have to tell people that they're not allowed to come to church unless they've been shown proof of vaccination. Say, oh, this is about vaccination. No, it's not about vaccination. I've been vaccinated. I don't care. By the way, some of you, you're like, that's my last time at church. Well, good for you. I do what I do for my body. You do what you do for yours. <laughs> I like the vaccination. I think it's a miracle drug. I put it in my body. You do whatever you want with your body. So don't call me anti-vax, but what I am is pro-freedom to go to church. Amen. So... Hear me. He said, he said to me, what am I going to do? For the first time in his church's history, he's going to be asked to check people at the door before you let them in. Let me be very clear about this. When it comes to Southern Hills, I don't care what happens with the government. The government could go one way or another on this, and it looks like it might go one way on this. Let me be very clear. If you want to wear a mask in church, we have masked people come. You're welcome. Unmasked people, welcome. Vaxxed people, welcome. Unvaxxed people, welcome. Republicans, welcome. Democrats, welcome. Sinners, welcome. Those who don't think they're sinners, welcome. Everybody, everybody's welcome to go to church. And hand to God, you call me on this. You call me on this. When they come and take me to jail for doing that, I will go to jail for that. And so will real preachers of the Bible. And then what you'll see is state-run churches who keep their tax-exempt status, who will placate so that they can stay a business. Just like you're beginning to see in the last year who are Christians who actually are still Christians and who are Christians who stopped going to church. There is a war upon us. It's not just playing out in the governmental realm. It's also playing out in your homes, and it has been for decades. There is a war upon us when homes are destroyed because of infidelity, because you can't keep your pants on. 
There is a war upon us when abuse is allowed to be happening in the home, in the church, in the community, and in the schools. There is a war upon us when we understand that addictions are leading our lives rather than Christ leading our lives. There is a war upon us. Listen, we need to understand there's a war upon us when Christian men are lured away to worship at the foot of pornography. Do you understand what you do when you slip away with your little device and you look at images do you understand? I mean, all day long, I'd go to war if it, then go to war. The devil has so infiltrated your mind as you lust after men and women that are not your spouse. And he defeats you because what you're actually doing is worshiping the God of sex rather than God. You're at war, friend. You understand you're at war, my dear sweet sister, when you fight against some other sweet sister of God because she said something that hurt my feelings. She's not your enemy. Forgive her. Get back to the war. We're at war when Christian teenagers live in rebellion toward their parents. They begin to convince you. You understand when you're 14, oh, I'm 14, 15, they just go through that phase. They go through that phase because they're growing into little warriors for God. And if Satan can convince them at 13, 14, 15 years old that you're the enemy, then he's got them for decades. Teenager, fight it. Your parents love you. And you're being tricked. We're at war when a Christian will lack the discernment because they believe the propaganda of, propaganda of whatever media outlet they listen to. I'm telling you, I, I talk with Christians that are more lucid and more clear about talking points they heard from the radio than they are about knowing the Bible verses in the scripture. You're being tricked. And what I'm doing is I'm waking you up. And this is, remember when I said earlier, there's going to be a moment, some of you don't like being woken up. That's what some of you are feeling right now. You're like, I don't think I like that last. That's okay. It's okay. Calm down, take a drink of water, and look around and realize, oh, yeah, that's, that's what's happening. Number three. Third thing you need to be aware of, if you're going into battle, being prepared for this war, yes, know your enemy, follow your warrior king. And then number three, pick up your armor. Say, Pastor Josh, I'm so glad that Jesus is this warrior king and, and it's, it's like he does everything for us. What I love about this is Jesus does not just lead into the battle by destroying the enemy at the cross and then utterly defeating him at the battle of Armageddon. In the midst of it, he says, now you have a job too. You better pick up your armor and you better fight. That's what he says in verse 13. He says, therefore, take up your whole armor of God that you may be able to withstand in the evil day. What do you mean stand in the evil day? The evil day is when you face temptation. When you decide to steal from your company. When you decide to treat your employees unfairly. When you decide that you're not going to pay your taxes as you were commanded by Jesus to pay your taxes. You have a responsibility to fight that temptation in the evil day. Stand against it. How do I stand against it, pastor? Pick up your armor. You say, what's my armor? Do I get armor? Like, how cool would it be, like, if, 
Like, how, like really, how cool would it be if I'm like, hey, come to church on Sunday, everybody gets a sword. <laughs> you know what I mean? Like, this place would be packed. You're like, everybody gets a sword. Some of you a medieval sword, some of you a samurai sword, you know what I mean? Some of you a dagger. You, get a, you want a dagger, right? Walk around with the dagger, be like, I got this from church, stay back. <laughs> Don't worry, it's not for you, flesh and blood. They'd be like, what are you talking about, you know? <laughs> it freaked the world out. So you do get armor, you get armor, you get it. In fact, I don't give it to you, you already have it. The problem is most of it is already at your closet, at home, packed away. You don't use it. He says, pick up your armor. It's not physical armor. That's what Paul was trying to tell the Corinthians in 2 Corinthians. And Corinthians don't understand physical versus spiritual. He's saying it's not physical armor. Look at 2 Corinthians. It's not physical armor. Yes, for though we walk in the flesh... Walk in the flesh means you still have a body. Any humans here that are disembodied? Raise your hand. Anybody? No? Okay. If, if you are, please leave, okay? Any disembodied? So even though you're in the flesh, we do not war according to the flesh. You live in a physical body, but your weapons are not physical weapons. Hear, my, hear me, sir. Hear me, sir, my friend. I want you to be more competent with your spiritual weapons than you are with your sidearm. You may at some point in life be called upon to use your sidearm. Every day you are called upon to use your spiritual weapons. I want to train you, okay? I'm your pal. I want to train you. Understand? We do not weapon with the, for our weapons of our warfare are not carnal, physical, but they are mighty in God to the pulling down of strongholds. That means you can destroy the enemy's battalions against you and against others. You just got to learn how. It's so cool, by the way, when you see it happen. Mark, like, what's so cool from my little perspective in life is that when you come to church, you see all sorts of different people. What I love to see is the little old 82-year-old woman with a little walker walking to church, got her little mask on, you know. She's saying hi to people. Most of the people just rush by her. She's nothing. She's nobody. She's just, and they have no idea who this person is. And when she goes home at the end of the day, and her feet are hurting and her knees don't work and she gets on her knees and opens her Bible. You have no idea. When she starts praying how the world changes. She is a warrior beyond so many of us. What I'm saying is you can become that. But I gotta train you on the weapons and I don't have time to do that today. Next week goes into verse 14, and you're going to see there are six weapons that are by your inheritance. If you're a Christian, yours. If you're not a Christian, you're on your own. You don't have these. But as a Christian, you have six weapons to use. Next week, I will, I'm telling you, next week is perhaps the most important sermon you've ever heard me preach. And that is why the enemy will do anything he possibly can to keep you from being here. Next week in Afghanistan, people will make the decision to go to church at the risk of their own life. Next week in Las Vegas, people will make the decision to go to church if their kid doesn't have a game.
By the way, that's the difference between Christianity and cultural Christianity. Next week is perhaps the most important sermon I've ever heard, you've ever heard because I'm going to share with you the six weapons that can absolutely revolutionize your battle day by day and the trajectory of your life and this war. Let's pray. Father in heaven, thank you for your word. My prayer is that we would take it seriously. I pray that your Holy Spirit would enter into the hearts of my Christian friends right now and awaken them to this truth and allow them, Father, to feast upon this truth for the next six and a half days. I pray that it would not escape them. I pray, Father, it would not get away from them. I pray that the Holy Spirit of God would remind them over and over and over and that you would keep the enemy away from them and demons at bay so that they can focus on the fact that they are at war. And I pray that you would awaken us to this truth, not just in a 40-minute sermon, but throughout our 168-hour our week and then bring us back next week to learn our weapons so that we can advance your kingdom. In Jesus' name we pray.